If you're like most of us, you own entirely too many clothes. And yet, the most common feeling we have when the time comes to dress up is I've got nothing to wear. We're constantly deal shopping and clothes buying, and yet we still feel as if we do not have the clothes we need to feel happy, stylish, attractive, and empowered. How did we get here? Turns out, the problem isn't our messy closets. It's our messy relationship to clothes, style, the fashion industry, and ourselves. Join host Aaron Flynn as we talk to the experts in the industry, history, and psychology of clothing and try to uncover how we got to this place with too many clothes and nothing to wear. Brought to you by Cloudwell. In the 1980s, the average American bought just 12 clothing items per year. Today, it's 68, nearly six times higher. Today, the average American throws away 80 pounds of clothes per year, with almost 90% of it ending up in a landfill or incinerated. The point I'm making is that we buy a lot of clothes, a lot more than we used to, and a lot more than we need. This causes all kinds of problems, and not just for our closets. We all know that something is seriously wrong with fashion, but what's harder to uncover is exactly what is wrong and why. Getting to the bottom of questions like these requires the help of an expert, an expert like Elizabeth Klein. Elizabeth Klein is a New York-based author, journalist, and expert on consumer culture, fast fashion, sustainability, and labor rights. In fact, she's one of the world's go-to experts on these subjects. You may have heard her interviewed on Al Jazeera, The New York Times, or NPR. She's also written two books. The first, Overdressed, The Shockingly High Cost of Cheap Fashion, sparked a global conversation around one very important question. Where exactly do our clothes come from? And in her follow-up book, 2019's The Conscious Closet, she shows us how our everyday fashion choices can actually change the world. And I couldn't be more excited or have more questions for her. (laughs) So with that, (laughs) Welcome, Elizabeth, and thanks so much for being here. I am so excited to be on, and thank you for that wonderful introduction. No problem. (laughs) Um, So take me back to the time in which you were writing your first book, and I believe you said (laughs) that you had 354 items of clothes in your closet and had also just bought seven pairs of $7 shoes on an impulse buying fury. So how did you go from that girl to being the leading expert on fast fashion. <laughs> That's a great place to start. So for me, um, you know, I, I very much come from the world of uh, being a fast fashion shopper. A, I was very addicted to shopping cheap. Um, I was one of those people that just considered it a sport to, to see how much clothing I could buy for the smallest amount of money. Um, and, you know, looking back, I think there were a lot of different reasons why I found that compelling. Um, but at some point, 
you know, I just turned around and looked at my closet and was like, okay, I own more clothing than anything else. You know, I'm a writer. I had more clothes than, than books. And I couldn't answer the most basic questions about them. What are they made out of? Yeah. I mean, I'm similar. I think I think I had 450 items in my closet. Right. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I was right there with you. And I think that that kind of brings me to the next theme, which is just how how did we get here? Yeah. Um, like why? It, it, it's you. It's me. It's, you know, half my family. Right. <laughs> we all had these huge stuffed closets. So what is it that brought us to this point? Right. I mean, Overdressed, that book is really, you know, I had to do a lot of historical and economic research to answer that question um, because it's really easy to say like, oh, we got here because we're, you know, we're just rapacious consumers and we can't control ourselves. But there were really huge um economic changes that happened in the late 90s and early 2000s that paved the way for fast fashion to uh, get going. And that's everything from the passage of NAFTA, which made it easier for fashion companies to outsource and make their clothes in places that didn't have uh, the same labor standards and environmental standards that the United States had built up. That was a really key piece of it. And, you know, here we are, fast forward 25 years later, and fashion brands are still able to manufacture in countries without abiding by uh, environmental and labor laws that that we absolutely take for granted in the United States. So that that's a part of it. Um, but of course, the world has just changed so much in our lifetimes. And I think that yeah. fast fashion is also a reflection of our digital society and the fact that information moves so much faster. So fashion moves faster. What's in style changes more because we are exposed to so much more information and imagery than we than we really have ever before. And I could go on and on and on, but those are two factors that have, have gotten us where we are today. Yeah. And you say that in just 15 years, I think global consumption has doubled. Right. And it's like for those of us who I think grew up in the, you know, grew up in the 80s, grew up in the 90s, this it feels like this is all we know. Cheap, trendy clothes, yeah. huge closets. Um, so do you think it's kind of equal parts, both our personal consumption and kind of just, yeah, the trends of social media and so forth and kind of all the stuff that we maybe don't see behind the scenes or um, is one side lopsided or what? It, what is your take on that? Well, that's I think that's that's what's interesting for me, you know, I, I was born in 1980. So I have seen, I saw this transition unfold. I absolutely remember a time when clothes were expensive and fashion moved so much, much, much more slowly. And, uh, you know, and, and going all the way to the world that we live in now, where if I'm talking to an audience of young people, I have to assume that they grew up with fast fashion and they're normal. They're, you know, the place that they are starting this conversation from is cheap, you know, a lifetime of access to cheap, ubiquitous fashion. I think that there's also another layer of separation that's happened because of globalization. It's really easy in the world that we live in now to feel like your products got here by magic. You know, 
that they didn't, yeah. they weren't made yeah. by a human being. They, they weren't crafted out of natural resources, water, energy, cotton, petroleum, because I, uh, you, we never, ever, ever, ever see that stuff. And even the pollution that the industry creates, uh, we're protected from that as well. If you're, if you're an affluent consumer in the West, you do not see that stuff. So we're we're really detached right. from this these these bigger issues in a way that that consumers and other earlier generations would not have been. So focusing kind of like on the consumer side of it, the pre nineteen eighties era did that look like um, stores turning over seasons more seasonally. Or what, what is the major difference if I was, if I'm, I'm a consumer today, I walk into, you know, Nordstrom or whatever it may mm -hmm. be. What is the difference today than it was, say, 1970? Um, so there, are a, there are a lot of differences. Um, you know, one of the, the big differences is that fashion was, it wasn't as consolidated. So it was uh, controlled by it was more dispersed. So it was owned by thousands of independent manufacturers, uh, retailers that spanned from everything from a dress shop uh, owned by a local family to a department store that was regional instead of national, all the way up to, to bigger brands that people might have been familiar with on a national level. So the industry was a lot more dispersed, um, and I think that that made it a lot more democratic. It meant that uh, it was easier for grassroots change to happen. It, it was just easier if there was a, you know, people wanted better pay or environmental regulations to get things done because you weren't, it wasn't the people up against these huge, huge conglomerates that have a really insane amount of power. It just had so many, so many more built-in speed bumps. Um, you know that the world of like global commerce today is frictionless. Making stuff could not be easier. So you know we just end up kind of living under piles of of stuff, and then looking around and being like, "Wait, how did how did my house get full of all of this crap? <laughs> how did I end up with four hundred and fifty items? Yeah, yeah totally. Yep. Um, and." It I know we both kind of said it. We've said the word fast fashion. How would you describe it? So I, fast fashion is, you know, first of all, it's it's a corporate, highly industrialized, highly um, dehumanizing process of mass manufacturing clothes. So the whole goal is to generate profit and I guess you could say encourage consumption. Um, it's really similar to the fast food model. It's like, how do we take this thing that's really simple, a hamburger, and make it in the most processed, industrial, disgusting way possible in order to sell more of it um, and in order to create more profit? Um, and that profit is not shared you know, equitably. And I think people often describe fast fashion in a really, in a really kind of reduced way, which is it's cheap, trendy fashion that's, you know, manufactured cheaply to encourage more consumption. But there's, I mean, there's deeper, I think deeper layers to it than that. I would also argue that, that most of the industry um, operates on a fast fashion model. 
It's not just H&M. Yeah, it's not just H&M and Forever 21. And has that really changed in the last five to 10 years because of the popularity of it? Or is that something that has, is much deeper? Yeah, I think that, you know, the in the in the 90s, the the big brands that started outsourcing, um, like Gap and Nike, they, they paved the way. And then basically, they weren't fast enough. So when the newer, the newer companies like H&M and Zara came along, they just kind of, you know, totally dominated because they were able to take this this model of corporate uh, mass manufactured clothes, um, you know, leveraging a global supply chain and speed it up using a lot of really fancy technology and data and really paying attention to what people were buying. So the supply chain was more responsive. But I, I say, and I say this in Overdress, that I think that um, Gap and Nike and those brands that started outsourcing first um, in the nineties were the ones that kind of paved the way for the rest of the industry. Yeah. In this part, like it really blows my mind because I can remember it's like watching Regis and Kathy Lee and the nineties being kind of all about the sweatshop era and what happened and just everyone feeling bad about it and like the whole thing that went down with Nike. And I think like everyone has some form of memory mm-hmm. because it was just such a media right, yeah. frenzy. But then I, I think getting into it now and obviously with Cladwell, it's like I I don't understand or I, I and this is why you're on the show. <laughs> I don't understand what happened. Like what happened from the 90s to now that we just kind of forgot about. I mean, I can that. tell you what my my perspective on it is because I lived through it. Like I was, I was a, um, sweatshop, uh, anti-sweatshop activist in college, which is why it's like, you know, very ironic that even I ended up as a fast fashion addict. Part of it was that, um, after nine 11 happened, um, the, the social movements that were criticizing the way we were setting up globalization, uh, in the late nineties and early two thousands, like there were these huge social movements that were questioning the way we were, um, drawing up our trade deals saying, you know, this is going to create a lot of inequality. This is going to destroy the environment in the developing world. It's going to create sweatshops. All of those things happened, but, um, after 9-11, um, you know, the country, the political climate changed overnight. And um, a lot of things that people were talking about when globalization first started un- unfolding just went dormant. Um, and then you have to think like that's so long ago now. That's, you know, 20 years ago. And generations of consumers have been born into a globalized world where being disconnected from what you buy is the norm. Um, accessing consumer products that, um, are made through a really complex supply chain. All of that is normal. If you, if you were born, you know, after 1985, you probably don't have any memory of a time before. Right. Yeah. For me, it's interesting to look back and be like, it is possible to have a national conversation about um, economic justice and justice for garment workers because it's happened here so many times throughout history. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because it's like, are companies doing this? Or I guess, do you have a perspective as to like why companies are doing this if they know it's bad? 
Yeah, I mean, because that, you know, the whole point of a corporation is to to generate profit. So, you know, questioning why they do what they do is honestly, it's not even that useful because, um, without, you know, changes in, uh, our laws, our policies, but also in our culture, they're just going to keep doing what they do. Um, that's the way they're, the whole corporate structure is set up is for them to grow every year and to generate more profit. And the thing is, you know, I meet people all the time who work for big clothing brands who are, of course, wonderful people. They're very committed to, um, you know, sustainability and changing the world. Um, but we're all locked into this system that keeps driving us towards creating more and more and more stuff. Um, so we all end up feeling like hypocrites because of it. And it kind of just leads you right back around to this place of like, you know what, some really fundamental things have got to change. It's not, it's not enough anymore to be like, oh, let's just, you know, switch to organic cotton and then everything's going to be good or whatever. You know, I think everybody's kind of coming to, to this place of being like, we really, really have to change things, change things on an emotional, spiritual, you know, our values, um, and structure in society have got to change. Yeah. And in your book, you mentioned that buying less is the single most effective way we can reduce our fashion footprint and wearing clothes longer reduces the carbon footprint. Mm -hmm. I think that the struggle a lot of people have is, you know, they're being told use a paper straw Yeah, (laughs) and it's become like, which cause do I support? And so, think clothes typically has had that feeling of like, oh, fashion, it's frivolous. It doesn't matter. It seems like what you're saying is that this has our personal choices or our personal consumption has a actually does have a huge impact. Is that true? I would I would broaden it beyond that. I mean, you know, I know that there are people who love, love buying stuff all the time. It's this one thing that we all can do affordably now, whereas, you know, your rent's expensive, your healthcare's expensive, your school's expensive, but at least like you've got cheap stuff. So, you know, and you know, I understand the appeal of it. If you look at the numbers about sustainability, like, yes, of course, like how much we consume is a big part of why the industry is so unsustainable. But on the other hand, it's like the company's keep churning out more stuff and their whole business model is kind of aimed at seducing us into buying more. I really hope that the book does not come across like your only power as a, you know, as a person comes down to like how you shop. What, what I hope to do with the book is actually shift the moment of pleasure in fashion away from the buying that to me is the least interesting part of the whole relationship. And, and, you know, and Cladwell has just done such important work in this space too, of being like, you know what, your joy with clothing can be somewhere else. It can be in wearing, it can be in repairing, it can be in building outfits. It can be in repeating an outfit. It can even be in like the way you launder your clothes yeah, I think I think that's so true. It's it's so interesting that we focus on this one moment when our you know relationship with the item is every day yep. after that. Um, and so I think that it's so fascinating. What what do you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, what is the, what are some of your personal um, 
yeah, personal things that you've changed or how do you kind of, uh, yeah, get excitement out of your closet? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny for me cause I've had to get more comfortable talking about this. Cause you know, if you've read overdress, you know, that like my background was in writing about like economics <laughs> and the history of the labor movement. And so when I sat down to write the conscious closet, I was like, man, I'm going to have to write about attempt to write about my personal relationship with clothing and how, how I feel it can, it can be a positive force in your life and like also a positive tool for social change. And it's really difficult to articulate that. Um, but I will try. I think the biggest change for me has absolutely been, um, away from, uh, the point of pleasure of fashion being about keeping up with what's cool and buying constantly shopping. That for me is not the fun part. And if it's, if someone's listening to this and shopping is still the fun part, like go for it. You know, I think, I think it's about really examining why you enjoy fashion and which parts of it are and aren't working for you. And I try to layer that throughout the book and be like, this is not just about being sustainable, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is about like how we live our lives and like living well, but yeah, all m- pretty much everything in my closet I've had for years now. So I, I view my, my closet or my clothes as a wardrobe. They're not just a, it's not just a collection of stuff. It's something that I have carefully built over time that I, I care about deeply and I add to it for the most part, very carefully. I still impulse shop from time to time as one would do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And then I love, I mean, I, I love if anybody follows me on Instagram, like I really, really love repairing and caring for clothes, like keeping things going for as long as possible has been a really unexpected joy for me. I would say you have definitely inspired me. I have, I feel like I have no skill in that area at all, but you make it look so tempting (laughs) to like try to whip out a sewing machine or try to like go learn a new skill. Um, It's really, it's really neat to watch. Yeah. And I want people to know that it doesn't actually require any skill. Like you can kind of just wing it. That's like a great way to get start started repairing because it's like your clothes are already broken. You you do have absolutely nothing to lose. Um, and everybody loves learning how to bend. Like I've never seen someone mend something and be like, oh, that was boring. Like everyone's just like, oh my gosh, that felt so good. It feels feels very empowering. I, I love this part in the book when you say clothes are easy to ignore because they are made far away. Yeah. And have throughout history been made by enslaved, unpaid, and low-paid laborers, often by women. But clothing affects every other environmental problem we care about. When you think about what a consumer can actually do, what are like some of the little things that actually make a huge difference? I am such a big believer, you know, that the book is called The Conscious Closet. And I did not, of course, did not coin the term conscious consumerism, but like committing to to thinking about where your clothes come from, making time to understand uh, how they're made is in fact a great place to start. And it is so important. And I think also 
passing that information on to other people in a non-judgmental way. Um, you know, I, the foundation of every social movement is education. And if we're still in a place where a lot of people think clothing doesn't matter, it appears magically from the sky, lands on a shelf or a hanger somehow, um, we're not going to get anywhere. So I'm a big believer in education and sharing information. And then I also, I start the book out with a closet clean out that's um, more intentional and aware for the same reasons, because one of the things that I learned in my research is how even our waste impacts people. Um, it doesn't just disappear. It, for the most part, with clothing, it ends up in developing countries where it has a mix of positive and negative impacts. But I think people have a right to know where their things end up and that it does have an impact. And I think that a good place to start rethinking your relationship to clothes is in um, the way that you part with them. Yeah, that's such a good perspective because we don't think about it. I think sometimes it's just you're shopping or you're buying something because, you know, you liked it or you're giving a gift to someone. It's just we we just don't think about what happens after it leaves our closet. Um, and I know like you've taken some trips. How have you seen firsthand any of how this plays yeah, out? Yeah, absolutely. I I when I was writing Overdressed, I went to a lot of different places, but um, going to China and Bangladesh were those were really um, life changing trips for me. And the experiences were really different because I would say that China is an example of a winner from globalization. You've just seen this like in one generation, many hundreds of millions of people lifted out of poverty because they followed this same plan, the same like capitalist consumer culture plan that we did, but they've paid so dearly, uh, you know, on an environmental level, like the pollution when I was in Southern China, the air pollution in particular, I, I couldn't believe it. I, and it made me really sick. Um, and I got to leave, I got to go on an airplane and leave and come back to the States and breathe clean air. That's not fair. Right. It's not yeah. fair that, you know, there are people and a lot of that is direct, um, directly linked to, uh, the textile industry and the pollution created by the textile industry. Certainly other industries have played a part, but, um, you know, just by consuming clothes, we end up being like complicit in this pollution on the other side of the world, which is, um, that's a lot, a lot to think through. Yeah. And and I know like, people are really, it feels, I can even feel it myself, like the momentum is shifting. Like if, if people are talking about fast fashion, people are trying, are yeah. asking like the questions of like, what do I do? Um, and I know <laughs> there was a really fascinating, I would say social experiment on my Instagram feed over Black Friday. So I feel like half the feed was all around like, get that deal. It's 30% or 40% off. Um, where to get it, how to get it. And then what was really fascinating, I think, again, because of Cladwell, like the other half of my feed mm -hmm. was shaming those people. <laughs> so it was like, this is crazy, because it feels like half the people are in the boat of um, 
there's very much a perfectionism vibe of like, Mm -hmm. we know about it. Now we can't shop at all. And then the other half is still not even aware. And, and it just feels like Mm -hmm. we can't shame people into shopping better. So I assume you, you still shop occasionally as well. So it's, I think the question that I get the most, um, which is when all I have access to is the mall or Amazon, how do I shop and still, yeah, like do the right thing? Yeah. And I, I, you know, in the book, I kind of walk people through how do you tell what companies are, are doing better than others. And I do believe that it makes a difference to avoid what we, what we'll call the worst actors and how you kind of can parse out which companies are doing absolutely nothing for sustainability. And I would actually include Amazon on that list. And so for me, cause I'm definitely, you know, I have a, like a weak spot for Amazon prime, um, like that, that's difficult. Mm-hmm. And, it, and they sell literally it's just everything. So, convenient. so it's like, how are you, how do you avoid it? Yeah. But I also will say, like, I try to make sure I'm not spending like hours thinking through where I'm going to shop because obviously there's more important work to be done than making sure you choose like an ethically perfect outfit. <laughs> you always have to like balance it out. <laughs> yeah. And I think like sometimes that's the hang up. And that's where I don't know I kind of yeah. lean toward. Well, I'll shop less overall and make sure every purchase that I do make is good mm-hmm. or that I that I will love and wear it. Um, but it's so hard because we're not really there yet from a society standpoint in which the readily available department store is all ethically made. Right. Or right. And like, or, in a you know, whatever time period, you know, like the Ralph Nader brand of consumer activism, there would just be like a handful of big companies that you, that we would all get together and go and try to reform. Right. But the market is so fast now that it's really good at like being like, Oh, you're into ethical fashion. I'm going to make some ethical fashion and sell it to you. So then we all kind of end up in our little silos shopping based on our values instead of changing everything. So the whole system is fair. Um, It's tough. It's tough. And you say, like soon enough, my life started to change for the better in both small and all-encompassing ways. Um, this gets into kind of my last, my last three questions, which is, what moment in this journey would you consider life-altering? Um, I'll give, I'll, I'll give a more recent example too. But when I went to, to Bangladesh, um, that that was. That was life altering for me, mostly because um, I I could see that you know in the way that the fashion industry is set up now, holding someone accountable is like so difficult. Like everything about it is designed to keep companies from having to take responsibility from how they operate, like you know, just seeing garment workers who live in poverty working for companies like H&M that make billions of dollars in profit for every year. And there's, it, I, it was not clear to me at that time how you would even begin to change, change that system. So fast forward to 
my life more recently. And I really believe strongly in um, changing the world, starting in your community and in your everyday life. This doesn't mean that systemic change or um, policy change is not part of it. But clothing is really, really interesting because like you can have, you can have an event where you teach people how to mend or how to build a wardrobe or, um, you know, have some sort of like debate about what's going on in the fashion industry. And you, you watch people take that knowledge and that energy back into their lives and start to make change that way. So I really believe strongly in like community and community built around the topic of clothing and sustainability. What's the one piece of wisdom in this whole process that you've gained that you wish you would pass on? Um, that, that walking away from fast fashion does not mean um, giving up a love of style or beauty or desire or wanting to look good or any of that. Um, that it can improve your relationship to clothes, but also definitely to other people. I think that fashion at its worst is a type of competitive jockeying where we're just trying to one up each other. (laughs) And there are all sorts of ways to redefine it um, that I think are not only like more healthy for us and our own emotional well-being, but just healthier for the world. So it really can make your life better. That's what I would, I want people to know. Finish the sentence. I believe. I believe in justice. I believe in in fairness. It's it's I think what's driven me since I was a kid to fight for social change. Um, yeah, and it's it's what what why I do what I do and why I continue to write about clothes because clothes can either be a driver of inequality and difference or it can be something that we convene around and uh, I think grow closer as a human community because of. I think on that note, <laughs> I will end this. <laughs> Which thanks so much for coming on here and sharing your story. And I feel like um, most of this was selfish driven. You answered all of my personal questions. <laughs> oh, good. So I I just really appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thanks again to Elizabeth Klein for sharing her wisdom and research with us. If you want to know more about fast fashion consumer culture, sustainability, or labor rights, I highly recommend starting with her latest book, The Conscious Closet, available on Amazon. I also recommend her November 2019 opinion piece in the New York Times, Wear Clothes, Then You're Part of the Problem. And if you're totally hooked like I am, you can see everything she's written and all the causes she supports at elizabethkleinbooks.com. I hope you'll join me on the next episode of Too Many Clothes and Nothing to Wear, where I talk to another expert and an old friend on how startups across the world are trying to disrupt the fashion industry and how that's not really helping. Yes or no? The answer is no, a stylist wouldn't do that. But would a business do that? Heck yeah, a business would do that. The real question I have for you is, (laughs) would you wear a mushroom suit? I would wear a mushroom suit if I was like going on a date with Lady Gaga and she was wearing her meat dress.